Let's turn our Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, and we're going to read at verse 37. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joses and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. There were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. When I was a teenager, somebody, uh, a bishop, of the Church of England, an Anglican bishop, uh, wrote a book called God is Dead. A very inviting title, a very encouraging title, and one that was designed, I think, to shock rather than anything else. Uh, bishop Robert Robinson's book had a profound effect in scholarly circles and in the universities of the, the land, in the UK particularly, 
It was a talking point. All the student groups used it as a, a text for discussion and so on. Well, I thought of that this morning uh, when I read again this, early this morning my first sentence of my notes. This is how my first sentence read. It was the day God died. Exclamation point. Now, you may be shocked that that was my first sentence, but I want you to hang in here. If you're on, watching on television, we're not going to get any heresy here. At 10th, you've got to hang on. It's shocking, isn't it, to hear it stated in those terms. But is it so surprising? I think this, this is the moment for us to, to pause from the, the many weeks that we've spent looking at the arrest and trials of Jesus and then to his crucifixion. This is a moment for us to reflect theologically and what has been happening on the cross or at the cross. And we need to begin by asking a question, what do we believe about God? Well, we believe a lot about God, but let's start with the creed that we used this morning. I believe in God, the Father, what? Almighty. Let's begin then with the almightiness of God. Let's remind ourselves that almightiness is a Trinitarian feature. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is almighty. The Father is almighty. The Son is almighty. The Holy Spirit is almighty. There are not three almighties. There's only one almighty, and that is the triune God. And what does almightiness mean? Well, almightiness contains within it the idea of omnipotence. That is that God has all power, all power. It also has within it the idea of omnipossibilities. That is that all the possibilities of anything that can take place anywhere and everywhere at all times throughout time and space and history are known to God. There is nothing impossible for God. That's what, that's what the angel declared to, to Mary. With God, all things are possible. We simply cannot conceive, really, of what God is capable of. Nothing constrains Him. Nothing contains Him. Nothing can alter Him or change Him. And yet, at the same time, we discover as we read the Bible about God that God is full of compassion. In other words, without… Well, let me, let me give you an illustration. Christine saw a little bird yesterday, and the bird had lost its wing, and she came in and told me, which is the worst thing to do. And I, I get really quite upset about these things. And because uh, I've so I avoided going out the back in case I saw that poor little thing. And I went out this morning, and the little thing was still alive. And as I, st- as I stood there in the garden, I have to tell you, I just, the tears just started to flood down as I thought of this little thing. I had compassion, and it had an effect on me. If you'd seen me, I'd be all red, and teary-eyed, and ridiculous looking, and you'd be embarrassed by me. Well, God has compassion, but He doesn't cry tears because God 
is without parts. There's nothing that makes up God. God doesn't have tear ducts. He's not like us. And so, therefore, when we think about God, we we must say that without undergoing any alteration in himself, in his divine nature, God has compassion, and God is grieved, grieved by humanity's rebellion and by the disfiguration of human beings as well as the world that is the result of the rebellion on planet Earth. And God is grieved by the suffering of the crucified one. When we talk about God's grief, we use analogical language. Uh, We don't use univocal language, that is, that God's grief is the same as ours. It's not like for like uh, between the creature and the Creator. God Himself lives in a state of eminent perfection. Sorrow does not disfigure God. Compassion does not create any change in God, uh, an uptake in His heartbeat, for example. Nothing disfigures or changes Him. You think of our human situation. Here we are in a hospital room with a loved one who is seriously sick. While we're there with this loved one, of course, our total focus is on them, their needs. We'll go to the nurse's station and ask something for them. We'll go and get them something to eat. We will, we will bathe them. We will do anything we can to make them comfortable, to care for them. And while we are there with them, they are the total focus of our energy and our emotion and our help. It's only after we leave them, only after we go out of the hospital and get into our own car, then we become overwhelmed by not just their situation, but by what their situation means for us. What if they die? What if they leave us? How can I go on? How can I live? How can I breathe without them? in my life. These things over, overwhelm us. Only God has endless sorrow for the other without ever feeling sorrow for himself. He knows the end from the beginning. There are no question marks in God's mind. So therefore, he doesn't have the problem we have at that level. Only God is endless concern for the other without feeling sorry for himself. But here's the thing. At the incarnation, we find God taking to himself, by virtue of taking our human nature, taking to himself a created sorrow, a sorrow like what I felt this morning about the bird that drove me to tears, that kind of sorrow, the kind of sorrow that leaves you in your car when you've left your loved one in the hospital crying tears about 
what you're feeling if you ever have to let them go. With the incarnation, specifically in the incarnate Son of God, the tears, the sorrow of God becomes human sorrow. Christ's physical exhaustion, the agonies that he endured, the sorrows and tears that poured forth from him are the pains and sorrows and tears of the Son of God, thinking of the God side. It is Christ in his human nature who personally suffers in his flesh in virtue of his human nature, in its vulnerability and ability to undergo suffering, Jesus' tears are human tears, but they are the tears of God, the Son of God. Here's what the Bible is teaching us. It's teaching us that God wished to weep in the flesh which he shares with us. God wished to weep with the tears of the flesh that he shares with us. In his trial and passion, Christ takes upon himself, he incorporates all the disfigurations of the world's sin. That which befalls Jesus in his passion brings into broad daylight the the ultimate fruit of sin. Sin leads to disfiguration and death. The disfigured face of Jesus, as we find it described in Isaiah 53, he had no form, his countenance was beyond recognition. That disfigured face of Jesus reveals in created terms the utterly real affection of the unchanging God in the face of the world's evil and sin. Jesus has suffered and died then while remaining utterly in control of his circumstances as we saw last time. He forgives the executioner. He promises paradise to a repentant criminal. He entrusts his own spirit to his father in prayer And he dies. His death is consistent with his life. It's an enactment of his teaching. Now, all of that was the introduction, which got longer uh, as as I did it. So I've only got two points. They're they're big points, but there are just two of them if you're taking notes. First of all, at his death and then after his death. At his death we find signs and wonders. We read them. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. God's verdict was declared. Jesus, our high priest, has offered the sacrifice that can get us into the very presence of God. Not left outside like everybody else. Now we're able to go with him right into the innermost sanctuary, into the very presence of God as we pray to him, as we did together this morning in our prayer. Curtain torn. The earth shook. There was a mighty earthquake, reminding us that he is the Lord of earth, which trembles before him. And in fact, that shaking of the earth 
led to tombs being opened. Many bodies of the saints were raised, we're told. Jesus' death is a resurrecting death. As he breathed his last, let's put it like this, as he breathed his last, Jesus moves from life to death at the same moment as these dead saints pass from death to life. David Dixon, Presbyterian, I think, says this, to show that Christ died not to remain under the great power of death and the grave, but to, quick, but to quicken the dead and raise them out of their graves. Theodore Beza, one of Calvin's uh, replacements in Geneva, puts it like this, they went into the city and appeared to many, it says. This shows that unlike Lazarus, Remember, Lazarus was dead for four days. Jesus raises him from the dead. But Lazarus was only resuscitated from the dead. He was not resurrected, as we shall be. Lazarus would die later. These, however, unlike Lazarus, did not rise from the dead to dwell among the human race and only to die later on. No, they rose from the dead in order that they might accompany Jesus into eternal life. Beza commends the opinion of Jerome that these were raised so that they might be sure testimonies of the quickening power of Christ. At his death, Jesus' soul would descend to the place of the dead, to paradise where the saints were gathered. And the instant of his death, he would be there with them in paradise. And in that instant, they would be resurrected with the knowledge that the Savior had come. And with that knowledge, now raised from the dead, they would be sharing it with everyone with whom they came in contact. And with the earthquake and the splitting of the rocks, we have a sign also of final judgment. In Revelation 6, we read, On that great day there will be a great earthquake. The sun and the moon will black be as black as sackcloth. The full moon will be like blood. The stars of the sky shall fall. The sky will vanish as a scroll that is rolled up, and every mountain and island will be removed from its place. And he goes on to say what the effect of this will be on the great men and the generals and the rich and the strong and everybody, whether they're slave or free. They will hide in caves and among the rocks, and they'll call on the mountains, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? This resurrection, this earthquake, are signs of the coming judgment day. But they're also signs of salvation. There's a sign of salvation as Jesus dies. There's a Roman centurion. He's the commander of the execution squad. We're told about him that he stood facing Jesus. He stood face on to the figure on the cross. He's standing as a sign of respect. And as he's facing Jesus and beholding him crucified and dead, Luke in his gospel tells us what the man was thinking, which Luke had probably interviewed the man. He, Luke is very thorough in his interview technique. And this is what he was thinking. 
This man was truly righteous. Now, righteousness is deeper than uh, Pilate's words. Pilate, you remember, said about Jesus that he was innocent. Righteousness takes us further down and further in and deeper into the religious relationship. To be righteous is to be like God himself. In Acts chapter 3, when Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, he says to the people who are gathered, he looks them in the eye and he says, you denied the holy and righteous one. Later we read that Jesus, the righteous, died for the unrighteous to bring us to God. That's what the soldier was given to think about Jesus. And flowing from that thought comes his confession. uh, Matthew tells us it wasn't just the soldier, it was the men who were with him who confessed this, that Jesus is God. Truly, this man was the Son of God, the Son of God. In the gospel according to Mark, Mark tells us on page one and the first sentence, he begins with these words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's not a title, like the angels sometimes have the title, sons of God. And we human beings, we are adopted sons of God. This is ontological. This is who Jesus is and what Jesus is ontologically in his being. He is God the Son, the Son of God by nature. Here's this Roman soldier. This Roman soldier is living several hundred years before the Nicene Creed is written. And yet, here at the cross, this Roman soldier gets as near to the Nicene Creed as it's possible to get. See what he calls Jesus. He calls him a man. And he calls him God. He calls him a man, and he calls him God. The church has recognized from its beginning that this Gentile, this Gentile who stands facing the dead body of Jesus, is the first person to make an orthodox declaration concerning who Jesus is. Isn't that remarkable? His confession is grounded on his conviction that Jesus is the Savior of sinners. Here's how someone has put it. At the foot of the cross... The church of the Gentiles comes into being. Through the cross, the Lord has gathers people together to form this new community of the worldwide church. Through the suffering Son, they recognize the true God. Something else happens. There's been a crowd who've been watching. And Luke tells us that this crowd who've been observing the spectacle at this point at his death have a change of heart. We're told that they turned back and they went home beating their breasts. That was a a Jewish habit, a way of, of showing penitence, of brokenness, of repentance. They turned back. The very Greek word that's used there 
is the one that's used to translate the Hebrew word shub, repentance. These people who were there on the margins of the event are feeling remorse, and they feel prepared now for conversion. At his death, there's the beginning of the Gentile church of God, and there's the beginning of others who are following towards repentance. That's the first point. Second point is going to be briefer, after his death. Typically, after crucified victims were left, typically, crucified victims were left to die and to rot on their crosses indefinitely. The Jews, however, required them to be taken down on the day of execution. And John reports this in John 19. Since it was the day of preparation, in order to prevent the bodies from remaining on the crosses on the Sabbath, the Jews asked Pilate that they might be broken, that they, their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. They didn't want to see Jesus on the cross. They got rid of him. They didn't want to see him when they were going about their business for the Sabbath. So the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the two men on either side of Jesus. The reason why you break legs of crucified people is that they're using their feet, even though their feet have been pinned to the cross. Nonetheless, they have to push with their feet in order to free their lungs to take in air as they're struggling to breathe on the cross. By breaking their legs, you prevent them from doing that, and they die quicker. That's the, the key. When they came to Jesus... They saw that he was already dead. Did you notice in our reading the surprise of Pilate when he hears that Jesus is already dead? Jesus was a, had been a carpenter. Jesus had been walking around Galilee solidly for three years. He, he, he was a strong figure of a man, and yet here he is, dead. Pilate was surprised that he was dead. And he asks, are you sure? Pilate asks, are you absolutely sure? that he's dead. Well, both of these incidents, the incident of the breaking of the legs and the, later on the, the spear wound, both of them are told, we're told uh, to underline something about Jesus as the Lamb of God. He died as the Paschal Lamb at the very same time as the Paschal Lambs were being slaughtered for that Passover. In Exodus 12, it was required by the ceremonial law that not one bone of the lambs had to be broken. The soldiers inadvertently preserved this symbolism because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We say at the Lord's Supper, Christ our Paschal Lamb has been sacrificed. Revelation 5, I saw a lamb standing. And then we read these words. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. This was all to fulfill Scripture. Not breaking the legs was to fulfill Exodus 12, Numbers 9, Psalm 34, which says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. He keeps all of their bones unbroken. Jesus, the righteous one, is the perfect sacrifice. 
And what about the soldier piercing his side? The Lord had perhaps suffered from some hypovolemic uh, shock, and as a result, there may have been pericardial, pericardial effusion or plur, plural, plural uh, effusion around the heart and the lungs. And if the spear had pierced both the heart and the lungs, then what would appear to be water would come from his side mixed with mixed with blood. But the Holy Spirit has no interest in appeasing our curiosity as to what had happened to him medically. That lance thrust silences those who claim that Jesus only seemed to die, one of the heresies that would grow up. But the piercing and the outpouring have a biblical significance for us. In Zechariah chapter 12, we find words which John quotes in John 19. The words are these, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. Those words come immediately after the description by the prophet of grieving women. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and shall weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn, Zechariah 12, verse 10. And then Zechariah goes on to describe the outcome of that day in which they will see the one that they have pierced. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. As we look at our pierced Savior, we see the benefits from His blessings that are symbolic, symbolized in that blood and water. How are we to take the symbolism? Well, the Reformers took it as indicating the sacraments of baptism and the supper, the water of regeneration, and the blood of our cleansing. John Calvin, in his commentary, quotes 1 John chapter 5, which reads like this, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with water and blood. And the Spirit is the witness, because the Spirit is truth. So there are three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three things agree. And he goes on to say this. John Calvin goes on to say this. John declares that the fulfillment of both of these graces is in Christ, and the purification and sanctification of the soul is pointed to us in baptism and in the supper. I do not object, he goes on to say, with what Augustine says, that our sacraments have flowed from Christ's side. For when baptism and the supper lead us to his side, that by faith we may draw from it as from a fountain, then we are truly washed from our pollutions and renewed to a holy life so that we can truly live 
before God. A pointer to the sacraments is another way of looking at the the piercing of his side. And it's put like this, our Lord in his sleep of death has his side opened. Just as the first Adam in his sleep had his side opened by God. From Adam came Eve, the mother of the living and the mother of the faithful. From Christ's side came the signs and sacraments of a new Eve, the church, of whom Paul says, she is our mother. Well, we come to the the end of the story. All four Gospels tell us that a wealthy member of the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea, asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Mark and Luke add that Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God, so he was a believing man. John calls him a secret disciple who had kept quiet, just like Nicodemus, who had come by night to see Jesus. These were well-educated, important people. Everybody else in the gospel seems to be ordinary people. Mary and Joseph, Elizabeth and Zechariah, Simeon and Anna, and all of the disciples, ordinary people without any uh, wealthy background. But after his death had been confirmed, the body was released. The gospel tells us the Lord's body was laid in a tomb which Joseph had owned and in which no one else had ever been buried, just as he had ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey on which no one had ever ridden. John tells us that Joseph provided linen cloths. These are expensive items back then, very expensive items, used normally of some ruler. And there was around 100 pounds weight of myrrh and aloes, these spices. The figures involved here, the expense involved here was normally dedicated to the burial of a king. This was a lavish burial. The other Gospels mention the women who observed the burial. They'd come with him from Galilee. They had prepared their own spices and ointments after the Sabbath rest. On the morning of the first day of the week, while it was still dark, they got up and they came to where the tomb was to anoint the body of Jesus and finish the act of burial. I mean, anointing is, is a good thing, so kind thing. But anointing is only an attempt to hold death at bay. Anointing is only designed to preserve the corpse from decomposition. And it's a vain effort. Anointing can only maintain the dead in death. It cannot restore to life. And so in the short ending of Mark, which is where I'm finishing, because I don't, uh, the, everything else underneath that is found elsewhere in the, in the Gospels, the women made their way, and as they're going, they're asking the question, who's going to move the stone? There they are, all keen and excited and moving and motivated, tearful, sad, overwhelmed, thinking very practically about this, but going on. I like the fact they kept, go- they kept going. They didn't stop. 
and go back and find somebody. They kept going. They were trying to see if somebody would move the stone. And they even comment. They comment. This is from the women. It was a very large stone. These are little incidental items that that underline the historicity of the events. We're, We're reading a true story of something that happened. And when they got there, they found the stone rolled back. And on investigation, they saw a young man sitting on the right side. There, there you have it. That's what they saw. He was sitting on the right side. Somebody reported that. This really happened, folks. Dressed in a white robe, and they were amazed. They discover later it's an angel. The angel sitting there expectantly awaiting their arrival. They would learn afterwards that Angels had interfered with the Roman guard who'd been charged with protecting the tomb. The angels had appeared to them, scaring the living daylights out of them. And they had run away, and the stone had been pulled back by an act of God. Well, the the angels' message to the women was clear. Do not be amazed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, as he told you. And they went out. They fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had come upon them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's where Mark ends. They were afraid. Of course they were afraid. Something supernatural had happened. Angels were involved. This is something huge. Their Lord has disappeared. The angels telling them, he's alive. These are scary things. I think angels are scary from time to time. The Gospel of John tells us, that Mary Magdalene held back as the others went to get help and to tell people. She was given a separate, special meeting with the Lord. And it was she who went, told Peter and John. The two of them ran to the tomb. John beat his older companion, got there first. John stopped and looked in. He saw everything as it should be. He saw the grave clothes neatly folded where they should be. Even the headband that had been wrapped around the head folded up and laid where the head had been. There was no evidence of a grave robbery going on. Everything was as it should be. And when Peter arrives, he plunges in and confirms what John has reported. That evening, they'll all be milling around in the upper room talking about what's gone on during the day about what Mary Magdalene said, about what the women saw. Cannot believe this. Can you believe that Mary Magdalene met Jesus? And all these stories were going around, they were talking about this, when Jesus appeared. There he is in the flesh. He's with them, standing there. If you brush up against him, you don't just go through an invisible thing, hologram, There he is in the flesh, talking to them. 
sitting with them, conversing with them. Somebody is absent that day. Thomas, the disciple, he's not there that Sunday night. And uh, when he hears the rest talking about it, Thomas, who's a kind of thinking man's disciple, who's always asking awkward questions. Thomas is so taken up with this reality. If Jesus is alive, then how do we, how do we categorize him? I mean, how do we think of him now? We, we can't just think of him the way we used to. I mean, when Mary saw Jesus, Mary Magdalene saw Jesus, she did what she would always have done if he, he'd come into her life before. If she, he'd been away and he came back. She gave, went to give him a hug, and he tells her, no, Mary, not, not, not yet. Don't do that yet. He's telling her, things have changed. Something's changed. You're not ready really to comprehend it yet. He does it kindly. Well, Thomas has been thinking all week. He says to the others, he says, unless I can put my finger in the nail prints and put my, my hand into his side, I will not believe. Next Sunday night, they're all together. Jesus appears and he singles out Thomas. Thomas, what were you saying? Unless you see, you will not believe. Take your finger, Thomas. Come over here. I don't know if Thomas did it or not. I think the Lord made him do it. There you are. Give me your hand, Thomas. Here's the hole in my side. And Thomas has been thinking about this all week. If Jesus is alive from the dead, I have to think of him in a totally different category altogether. If Jesus has risen from the dead, he is the Lord God of Israel. And the first words that come to his mind are the words of the, of the Jewish Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. The cross leads us immediately then to that place. And in the next six weeks, there would be visit after visit. Visits that transformed these disciples from doubt to certainty, from fear to faith, from sorrow to joy, from timidity to courage, from disbelief to conviction. By the end of that six weeks, every one of those men and women would be able to confess with Thomas, my Lord and my God. Can you do that this morning? This is the most glorious story in the history of the world. With this story, everything changes. With this story, your future changes. And if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you 
can be saved. Let's pray together. Lord, in your kindness and goodness, you've helped us to be around the cross of Jesus in our imagination, in our thinking these weeks. We've been on holy ground. There is no kind of topic higher or greater to occupy our minds. We pray, Lord, that you would bring these truths home to us, that we would wonder, be in wonder and awe of that great event that secured our eternal salvation. And today, Lord, for those who may be on the fence, may be moving to come down from the fence on one side or the other, we pray, Lord, that today your word would help them to come down on the side of truth rather than error, reality rather than shadow, on the side of Jesus, risen, alive, and coming again. We pray in his strong name. Amen.